It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? Or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. No, crazy, I mean, or is this infuriating? No, I keep joking. It's like that. M. Night, I don't know. You're too young, but there was this M Night Shyamalan movie. I can't remember which one it was, but he, he would say, "I see dead people everywhere." No, the Sixth Sense. I'm not that young, girl. I remember that movie. Okay. So that's what I said. I see sexism everywhere. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> that's that's how it is. It's like a ghost. I see it everywhere, and I do think that we have had a real consciousness. You know, in the '70s, my mom's generation, they were, you know, they would have these like consciousness raising circles among feminists to help them recognize the everyday sexism that was around them and then to call it out. There are similar things happening now where, you know, I and my contemporaries and, you know, women like you who, who notice these things are beginning to call it out. We need to do that relentlessly and we need to hold the media accountable for it. One of the reasons why we continue to see this kind of incredibly biased coverage is because the media in print, film, television, and digital is overwhelmingly still dominated by white men. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
today's episode, we are sharing my conversation with Lauren Leader, author of Crossing the Thinnest Line and CEO of All In Together, an organization that helps women enter the political arena. Lauren has dedicated her career to closing gender, racial, and social gaps politically and professionally, and she has a new development in her life that we'll be talking about as well. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with everybody. But first, we have to talk about our attorney general. We have to. There's no way around it. So we're going to do that. Before we do, we're in a space, a season of thinking here at Pansy Politics about where we are and how we got here and where we want to go next. I mean, never forget our word for this year is discern. That's right. And we need your input in our discernment process because, Mm -hmm, as we mm -hmm. always talk about, Pansy Politics is a community and it is an invitation for you to be part of these conversations. It is not just about the two of us. So we want to ask you kindly to give us a few minutes of your time filling out a survey. And listen, I know, I know, I know you have a million surveys. That doesn't like surveys. (laughs) I hate surveys, too. I despise them. But I love y'all. And your thoughts are really important to us. And if we are going to make changes, investments of time, investments of money, we really need to understand what's working and what's not working from your perspective so that we can factor it into our discernment process. So you'll see that link in the show notes. We'll send it out on social media as well. And we thank you in advance. And speaking of social media, thank you Mm -hmm. to all of you Mm -hmm. who answered the call on Instagram. We are getting much closer to Sarah's 10,000 swipe up number. But if you haven't done that yet, please hit pause, go follow us on Instagram, and come back to this conversation. Yeah, I know there's a lot of you who are like, I'll do it when it's over and then forgot. So here's your little reminder. We're getting so close. It's making me so happy. I also wanted to thank our listeners who reached out and said, hi, y'all said Chabad wrong. Okay, this is my favorite is one woman said, if you feel like you're about to spit, you're saying it correctly. Chabad. It was a good so instruction. Now, yeah, it was. It was helpful. And she said you could also, Paul and a couple other people reached out and said, you can just say Chabad, but Chabad. I like saying it that way. I'm so glad they've reached out and told us how to say it properly. We appreciate that very much. We are always in a space of learning here. So critical feedback helps us do that. That is also why we are asking you to help us with our survey. But please do feel free to tell us what is working well, because you can learn a lot from specific positive feedback in addition to the critical feedback. So thank you in advance for following us on Instagram, doing the survey, all the things. Onward to the attorney general who testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday. For how long? The hearing started at 10 o'clock. It finished at about 3 o'clock Eastern with a one-hour lunch break. Beth, did you feel like the Attorney General and the Senate Judiciary Committee were also coming from a place of learning like we were just talking about? I did not. I did (laughs) not feel that the goal in the room was to learn. At least they didn't bring fried chicken. We'll tell you about that in a second. I will say that I thought this hearing was higher caliber than many congressional hearings have been recently. Hmm. Okay. I thought that some of it was the circus disaster that we're used to, but I did think there were really illuminating moments, beginning with the opening statement from Senator Lindsey Graham, in which he admitted that he has not read the Mueller report in its entirety. He's read most of it, but we did more preparation for our podcast on the Mueller report than Senator Graham did to chair the hearing about the Mueller report in the Senate. So there's that. Blessings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I come back to the purpose of these hearings and the fact that I really think this is directly related to Attorney General Barr because he would not come 
to the House Judiciary Committee, which is the fried chicken reference for those of you who don't know, because a member of Congress who I'm not going to say his name because I don't think he needs any more publicity for this stunt, brought chicken, was like chicken bar, didn't even like literally brought Kentucky fried chicken and ate it. Chicken bar won't show up. That's silly. But I think it's related because I understand so much why Chairman Nadler wanted attorneys to question because it's like every time we do this and we're jumping from one party's take to another party's take to one senator's line of questioning and narrative to another party's narrative, man, I just get whiplash and it makes me tired. It is not an effective way to get at useful no. information. The two moments that stood out to me as being really illuminating were Senator Sass's line of questioning where he actually talked about how do we know what the rules are? Mm-hmm. And should the Trump campaign have allowed Paul Manafort to volunteer his time? Can you be on a foreign government's payroll and come volunteer for presidential campaigns? What are the rules? And I felt like he did a good job of saying to the attorney general, I'm being nice to you, but like, I need you to do better than this. I do need you to give us some guidance about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable because Russia's really clunky about this, but it's going to get better at it. And China's real good at it. And mm-hmm. Washington is a big mess. And not because anyone individually is a terrible person, but there are lots of people in this town on undefined retainers. And so understanding who they work for and what their real interest is is hard. And we need some definition. So I thought that was helpful. I also thought Senator Harris's questioning was helpful when she mm-hmm. didn't even say hello, like, here she is. Has the White House instructed or suggested Mm -hmm. that you open any investigations? Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. uh, Yes or no? Could you you repeat that question? I will repeat it. Has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no, please, sir. Um, the president or anybody else. Seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. I mean, there have been discussions of, of matters out there that... Uh, they have not asked me to open an investigation, but... Perhaps they've suggested... I don't know. I wouldn't say suggest. Hinted? I, I don't know. Inferred? You don't know. Okay. That was a question that I think cut right at the major pain point right now, which is, do we have mm-hmm. an independent Department of Justice or not? And mm-hmm. I thought she got right to the heart of that in a way that was really important and illuminating. And also felt like she learned from Michael Cohen. Like, you know what I mean? Like the idea that, okay, I get the game we're playing and that he never openly asks for these things. Can you tell me if anyone has ever suggested or in? And I like that she was like inferred. (laughs) Like, let me give you some other words. (laughs) Hinted. Um, Let's play at that. And I just thought I thought that was so good and like felt like it was building on other hearings, which almost never it never feels like that. But I still think, even you know, picking and choosing these great moments is why the overall narrative of the Trump administration, of the Mueller report, of the Justice Department is getting so muddy, much to the loss of our country and risk of our future processes. 
I would rather talk about those two great moments as the great moments, though, than, for example, Senator Cruz, who tried to be the most no. righteously indignant voice in the mm-hmm. room, or Senator Hirono, who on the other side Oof. of the aisle tried to be the most righteously indignant voice. I'm I'm tired of all of that. Even if what people are saying is true, it is so unproductive. And mm-hmm. I thought that Senator Harris and Senator Sass performed the role that Congress is there to perform in their lines of questioning. And I would like to have more of that. Have you listened to Hillary Clinton's interview on Rachel Maddow about Attorney General Barr's, the Mueller report and Barr's testimony? I listened to it live in my car as I drove home from an event about white privilege. It was a very busy day for me. (laughs) That conversation she had with Rachel Maddow, like, really helped me think through some things. And one, I think, at this point, with your regards to the pain point of the role of the Justice Department, I mean, he's just running interference. Like, I feel like Attorney General Barr is running interference for the Trump administration, maybe even the Trump campaign. And so we should just acknowledge that. And I want to ask you, like, how much do you think Americans— even before the Trump administration thought of the attorney general as sort of America's lawyer as opposed to the president's lawyer. I mean, I feel like I'm taking the opposite position here, but I am trying to insert some nuance in how we talk about this because I'm not sure America ever saw and not and maybe ever since maybe Bobby Kennedy was appointed attorney general ever saw the attorney general as this separate law enforcement official from the president. I mean, I think that that has been a little muddled for a while. Do you think that's true? What do you think? I'm not sure that Americans have considered the role of attorney general. I think Americans Mm. have considered specific episodes involving the attorney general. You think about Janet Reno and Waco. You think about Eric Holder and Fast and Furious. So there are moments when we suddenly care about the attorney general. But I think for the most part, Americans aren't following the defense of certain laws and executive action in the Supreme Court. Americans aren't Mm -hmm. thinking about whether the attorney general serves the president or the public. I think this is another example of how we all presume that our system works just fine and we only start to pay attention when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so it is a little disingenuous to walk around presuming that the attorney general has always acted with such independence. Mm -hmm. But a theme that you have heard from people deeply embedded within the Department of Justice, James Comey comes to mind, Andrew McCabe comes to mind, Robert Mueller comes to mind, is this sense that it's very clear to us that we are supposed to be separate. We are supposed to be able to investigate independently and follow the facts wherever they lead us, no matter who we're investigating. Now, I think this structure is flawed. I Mm -hmm. hated the way Republicans talked about the Department of Justice, about the Bureau, about the special counsel's office in in the hearing with Barr. I hated it. There are some legitimate points buried beneath all of the propaganda that I think Congress needs to address. Congress, you don't like the structure. Well, you made it. So start thinking Mm -hmm. about what you want it to be. And specifically start thinking about what it needs to be in a new era when who is working in politics and their interests behind their work is more suspicious and needs to be more thoroughly vetted. We need some new rules for a new landscape. I think that is a good place for congressional work. We're never going to get there if we keep talking about Clinton's emails and Trump and Russia. But 
there are legitimate questions to be asking. But to your point, I, I think you're right that historically we haven't just in our normal household conversations been saying, well, you know, maintaining the independence of the attorney general is paramount. <laughs> I think for me, the other mind-blowing moment of the testimony was when, <laughs> when he said a president could end any investigation which he thinks is based on false accusations. Uh, the absence of an underlying crime doesn't necessarily mean that there, were, that there would be other motives for obstruction, although it gets a little bit harder to prove and more speculative as to what those motives might be. But the point I was trying to make earlier is that in the situation of the president, who has constitutional authority to supervise proceedings, if in fact a proceeding was not well-founded, if it was a groundless proceeding, if it was based on false allegations, uh, the president does not have to sit there constitutionally and allow it to run its course. The president could terminate that proceeding and it would not be a corrupt intent because he was being falsely accused and he would be worried about the impact on his administration. That's important because most of the obstruction uh, claims that are being made here or, or episodes do involve the exercise of the president's constitutional authority. And we now know that he was being falsely accused. I thought that was a very fascinating take on executive power and the interaction between the independence of the Department of Justice and its interaction with with the president and the presidential administration, I guess. I don't know how he made that argument with a straight face. It took me back to the movie Vice and all of those segments mm-hmm. about the unitary executive and yep. just this idea that the president if is I the do law. it, it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. The president is the law, so the president can't defy That's the law. A monarchy, mm-hmm. and that is mm-hmm. a monarchy. And it is to me, it makes me want to re-examine lots of moments in his personal career to see how long that theory has been building and in other mm. in what other ways it's been worked out. He says these crazy things. We're all upset at the fact that at this point it feels like he is not operating independently but is just running interference for the Trump administration. So now there's all of his calls for his resignation. But at what point do we care more about the way the attorney general has handled the Mueller report than we care about the conclusions of the Mueller report? Was mission accomplished in that way, right? He gets, right? He just it feels a like new, a stall to me. It he feels threw a like new a issue stall. on the pile, and that's yep. what the Trump administration does. We just keep throwing issues on the pile and assume that nobody gets buried under it. Yep. And that's what happened in his refusal to come before the House Judiciary Committee. Now we just Mm -hmm. have a new food fight. Yep. And I do think Nadler's trying to avoid that the best he can. But at a certain point, he's stuck. My conclusion from watching the empty chair hearing in the judiciary. So if you haven't been paying close attention to all of this, you can hop over over to Twitter because I have done thousands of tweets over the week about what has transpired. Probably not thousands, but a lot. So after the Senate judiciary hearing, the attorney general was supposed to appear before the House. He refused to appear because he didn't like the format, as we have been alluding to. And the House Judiciary Committee had its meeting 
And Nadler made his opening statement and gave the minority ranking member the opportunity to make his opening statement. And then Nadler said, ordinarily, I would introduce the witness now, but the witness did not come. What I took away from the conduct of that hearing and from Nadler's statements during that hearing, and maybe this is a little naive, but with Nadler, I just get the sense that he is done and what's politically most advantageous has fallen way down his list of priorities Hmm. because he is so deeply concerned about an attorney general who looks at a subpoena from Congress The subpoena was for an unredacted copy of the Mueller report, and the department notified his committee that it would not comply with that subpoena. And when an attorney general looks at a subpoena from Congress and says, nah, I think for Nadler that has hit a level of real crisis that trumps politics in his mind. I did not get the sense that Nadler conducted the hearing today in a politically theatric way, but that he is... He is disturbed, and he's in this space of thinking, even if we overplay our hand politically, this will not happen on my watch. Well, I think that, like I said, I think the the lawyers were such a good approach. I, and I'm, I think that, again, the, the interview with Hillary Clinton and Rachel Maddow, and she wrote a—Hillary Clinton wrote an editorial saying very much—I I wanted to ask you what you thought about that editorial, too, because I felt like she was making your point. Let's talk about process. Let's talk about how we can use the process to have the outcomes we want. And I don't mean the political outcomes. I mean protecting our future elections, protecting the separation of powers, all those things. And I think her and Nadler, I hear them saying and kind of doing similar things, which is— Let's use attorneys. I mean, I I think she's right. I think at this point we just and you've said this and we both said this. We need a commission like the 9-11 commission to to really examine this because we're asking people to do it that are limited in their courses of action. And I feel like this is something I keep coming down with on the Mueller report. Why did we ask him to investigate wrongdoing by the president? And he was going to say, I can't charge any wrongdoing against the president. I feel like we're bumping up against the wall the process we've chosen and the people we put in charge, either be through choice or through just the limits of their role. And so, okay, well, this isn't working. Why do we keep doing the same thing and expecting different results? This is the trouble with the attorney general's testimony because, on the whole, it is technically accurate and exceedingly disingenuous. It is true that usually prosecutors make a binary decision, we're charging or we're not charging, and that's the beginning and end of it. It is so disingenuous to pretend that that's ever what was envisioned for the special counsel's investigation. Mm -hmm. I heard Benjamin Wittes say after it was over, with respect to Barr telling a congressional committee that he did not know what Mueller's team was concerned about when he, in fact, had a letter from Mueller expressing frustration with the letter that he wrote summarizing the report. Benjamin Wittes said, I do not think that was perjury and it was deeply dishonest. And I think that's the summary for the Mueller report, that what the president personally engaged in may not have been criminal and it also utterly lacked integrity. Yeah. And it made our nation less safe And it put us in a position of having a leader who is in many ways compromised. And that is hard to get at through all of the avenues we have available. You saw that in Democrats during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Even though on the whole, I think they did a pretty good job. If you're really listening to their questions, 
they were getting at different things at different times. Some of them wanted to say, you should not have reached, you reached the wrong conclusion on obstruction. Some people were going for, actually, he did obstruct justice. Some people were going for, even if he didn't, none of this is okay. Yeah. Which I think is Congress's role to say, even if he didn't commit a crime, none of this is okay. And then some people were saying, you, Mr. Attorney General, have handled this incorrectly. And that's the thorniness of the whole situation. We don't have a good mechanism Unfortunately, and I think a lot of this is because of the partisanship in Congress, I think if Republicans were coming to the table in good faith, this would be a lot easier. It would still be hard. It would still be miserable. But we don't have a good mechanism for somebody to stand up and say, I've considered everything separately and together. That's what we have to do with Trump. That's why I would hope an election is the best way to resolve this, because you have to consider everything separately and together. It's not just volume one of the report or volume two of the report. It's not just crime or no crime. It's not just Russia. It's also loads of corruption that we learn more about every day. We have Kellyanne Conway violating the Hatch Act right and left. We have foreign governments governments. spaces in the Trump Tower. (laughs) Exactly. Part of what I have been considering amidst all the hot takes is just our overall numbness. We've gotten more reporting this week on how the administration had no clue how to reunite families separated at the border. It's even worse than we thought. We're practically running an orphanage is how they characterized it on Morning Joe at the border. It's just easy to get numb to all of this. And we don't have a great mechanism for somebody to step back and say, I've looked at the whole Here is a path forward. That integration is something that I have also really been thinking about. And I really had an aha moment listening to Hillary Clinton talk about it because I thought she the way she expressed how she felt reading the Mueller report was a better expression than my very frustrated feelings. I initially shared that. Why are we not acknowledging that this affected the outcome of the election? But she said we need to look at volume one basically and say, okay, well, they had an objective and they were successful. They wanted to sow discord. They wanted to affect, they wanted to increase the chances that Donald Trump would win, and they were successful. Okay. And I just thought, even as a political podcaster who talks about this regularly, who thinks about it all the time, I still really have this instinct to try to compartmentalize particularly Russia's role in our elections and the way the story is told through these hearings in the media, I think contributes to that. I think it was something about hearing her talk about it and thinking back to 2016 and how people talked about her and realizing, oh, and I I said at the time, it got to a point, like I remember saying on the podcast and other people, it got to the point where I thought, who are they talking about? Because they are not talking about the Hillary Clinton I know. And I don't just mean as a person who staffed her. I mean as a person who grew up around her and knew people didn't like her and that there was like gendered reactions, like very comfortable with the ways in which people did not like her and talked about her. But it reached a point where I was like, this is something very different. And (laughs) I think the way they were so successful at sowing discord is that it became about just my fellow Americans and how they felt about Hillary Clinton, as opposed to realizing, no, some people we saw talking about Hillary Clinton online were not, were in fact not 
people in the sense that they were not American citizens expressing themselves. They were either bots or Russian trolls. And also that contributed to the overall conversations, even quote, like real Americans were having. It's this big mess. It's all inextricably tied up. And we can't, there's no way to pull it apart and say, oh, well, America just wasn't ready for a female president. Oh, well, Donald Trump. We can't have a conversation with about 2016 without also talking about Russia's interference in our election and how that affected everything. I was thinking about World War II as we come into 2020 and we think about how to prevent this. I was like literally thinking about the propaganda posters of World War II, like the loose lip sink ships. Remember those kind of posters? Yes. Mm-hmm. And how everybody was encouraged. Think about this. Not, I mean, I'm not saying we need to think like every interaction could be to Russian spy. That's not what I'm talking about. But in my head, I'm like, you know, every time I think back to that time and I get to and I start to get angry again about how I felt people talked about her and and the tenor of the conversations, even to this day, I need to like envision the people that I feel like are the group of Americans. And when I start to paint a less than generous portrait of my fellow Americans on the quote unquote other side the Trump base, the rallies. I need to like envision that propaganda and those propaganda posters and envision literally like a Russian intelligence officer poking all those people from behind with a pitchfork. You know what I mean? Like I need to visually remember that it's never at this point in the reality of our elections and our even our just political conversation, the political environment that we live in. It's never just about I'm an American, you're an American and men are our opinions disconnected, there's a much bigger environment we all live in, one in which foreign governments went out of their way to interfere, one in which we thought we were talking to our fellow Americans or we thought these Facebook pages were real and they weren't, one in which it's almost hard to detach our perceptions of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton from that experience. I think it's just going to take time, honestly. I think it's because it's such a hard thing to think about because there's been such both a deluge and a steady drip in like sort of a weird paradoxical way of information about Russia, information about the Mueller report, about these investigations. Like it's just going to take time for us to really all come to Jesus, as we say in the South, about what happened in 2016. And like I hear you saying like we need to be forward facing. And I agree with that. But I just think so much of it is processing and thinking back about experiences on 2016 and being like, oh, my gosh, there was so much more going on than I knew at the time, than I've wanted to acknowledge since that time. And I think that is just long, hard work. And I guess what I'm also saying is it's not all going to be contained inside Congress or inside the Department of Justice or inside any government process at all. It's going to be sort of cultural work as well in a weird way. The battle is cultural, too, because we're learning just this week about the role of Russia in the anti-vax movement, mm-hmm. that Russia is dividing us, not just politically, but culturally. Russia is finding all of our weaknesses and exploiting them. To what end? Who knows, right? Just the chaos of it is enough. The division is enough. It is so they understand how destabilizing it is to have us turned against each other in every way. Mm-hmm. One thing that I want to pick up on that I have been thinking about as well, I believe that the reason Hillary Clinton's comments, her editorial, her interview are so important to you in particular is because you trust her. Mm -hmm. 
Think about how many Americans have one person that is their trusted person and how many do not and how many have groups of people that they trust and how how much power a person who we decide is our person who we trust has. I felt this a little bit today when I read this very short blurb about John Huntsman in Russia. He spoke, I think this was in Politico's playbook, John Huntsman on the record made kind of rare comments about how in Russia people believe the Mueller report is like, well, we've cleared this up now, we can move on. And he was saying as our ambassador to Russia, um, no, we have problems still. We have many, many problems that we need to work through. And there was this deep sense of relaxation in me that this person who I trust is working this problem and is speaking about it in a way that I really hear and that really makes sense to me and that sinks in deeply with me. And that has nothing to do with anything other than I really trust John Huntsman. And I feel like the opportunity in a new election especially as people come onto the scene who are not known to much of the country, is to build some new relationships of trust. One of the things that I really hate about this backward-looking process, and it's not that I think you're wrong about it, Sarah, but I just find it to be such a closed door, is that even people who have really limited information about what happened in 2016 and about who all of the players in that saga are have really hardened opinions about the individuals who ran for president. And so that feels to me like the least fertile ground to solve problems together. But coming into a new election, I feel like there is fertile ground to say, who can we trust? Who can I really hear? Is there a a voice in this mix that when that person speaks, I trust it. I'm struggling with this a little bit because I am looking hard for candidates to support knowing what a long shot it is for Republicans to nominate anyone other than Trump. I'm looking hard at the Democratic field. And there are lots of things that I like that I see. And then I hear this sort of cavalier approach about, well, all the systems are broken, so let's be done with the Electoral College. Let's change the composition of the Supreme Court. Let's, And at the same time, these folks are sitting in hearings talking about norms, norms, norms. And I find that really disorienting. And so I haven't found that voice that I just really trust yet. But hearing you talk about Hillary Clinton reminds me that that is so powerful politically. And we're in such a cynical and numb moment, as I was talking about earlier, We just really need some folks to emerge who can provide those steadying voices. We don't have to all agree on who they are, but I think it would help for us to just have more people that folks really gravitate towards and feel comfortable with. Two things. I do want to add, it's not just that I trust her because she's Hillary Clinton. I do trust Hillary Clinton, but also because I think she is so brilliant and has such a unique set of life experiences to this particular moment that she was an attorney during the Nixon on the committee, the impeachment committee. Her husband was impeached. And here she is, the 2016 candidate. I mean, a woman has a, a fascinating ability to be present at very important historical events. OK, so I think that's one thing. I guess. What I think is what I'm going to push back on the idea of we have these hardened positions from 2016, and I I don't disagree with you. I totally agree with you. I think we have an impulse in America 
to decide reconciliation only comes from moving forward. And I don't think it's our best impulse. I think there were hardened opinions about slavery in the Civil War and in an ability and in a desire to sort of think the process would move us past that. We never looked with open and honest eyes at our past mistakes. I think we do that with I think we did it with 9-11 and a desire to set up the Department of Homeland Security and a future and a future facing process will save us. And I mean, save us might be more strong than what you're saying. But I mean, I think we want to say a future process, looking to our norms, looking to what we can learn and how we can do better is an essential part of the process. But I think it's a further down in the process. And we want to skip the important work of first and foremost, grieving, (laughs) apologizing to one another, acknowledging where wrongs were made and where people made mistakes, where people, how people were hurt by those mistakes, what we can do to offer real, concrete amends. How can we offer up amends for the wrong that happened? And, you know, it's like, I, I don't want like a reparations check to Hillary Clinton, but we do that a lot. We just... We don't want to look at what happened because everybody's still raw or everybody's still hurt or everybody's opinions are still set in stone. But I don't think moving forward without looking back has served America well in the past when we've had very difficult, traumatic experience. And I think that we need to start thinking about 2016 is not just a trauma that we inflicted on each other, but a trauma that was inflicted upon us by a foreign government. And maybe then we could look at the hurt And the hardened opinions with fresher, more open-minded eyes and really work through and talk about what happened. Because I just think moving forward to 2020 without doing that is going to leave some gaping wounds, as we often have in America. I think reconciliation is really important. I think the idea that that is available around Clinton versus Trump, that unique issue, is just not the best use of our energy, frankly. I think it is critical to come to grips with the fact that Russia interfered in our election and is going to do so again and has done so before and did so in a very significant way in 2016. I have no argument with any of that. I also think that what I hear, honestly, not from you, but from a lot of people on the left, is that until the whole country gets together and says, I am so sorry that this election was stolen from Hillary Clinton, we can't move forward. And that is wrapped up in a whole lot of assumptions about the Electoral College, about certain states, about certain people. And I think it's counterproductive and I think it's divisive and I think it's unwise. And I understand the feelings beneath it. And I hate that those feelings exist, and I wish that I could fix them. And do I personally think that we would have been better off had Donald Trump lost this election? Of course I do. I didn't vote for him. That, to me, though, is a place, if we're still coming to grips with slavery and all the examples that you offered, we still haven't done the hard work of processing those issues. And I don't want to direct the energy that we have for that backward-looking work at these two human beings. I want to direct the energy that we have for that backward-looking work at those bigger structural issues that are still present every day in our society and that will inform our future leadership and how we handle 2020 and elections beyond 2020. 
I mean, I guess I just feel like any conversation about 2016 isn't just about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I think it's not either. But when we reduce it in that way, that's where I have a problem. I mean, I feel like there's it's about so much more than that. And that's why it's so important to talk about. I mean, it's almost like a receptacle for every item, every issue in America that we keep trying to push past without dealing with. I also think it would be healthy for America and would push us past the idea that we consume politicians like products to say we all need to find a way to find trust in public officials without it always having to be a fresh start. A listener emailed me about have we ever seen another Democratic presidential nominee who who lost the nomination and then came back and won the election. Now, we haven't seen a Democratic one. We did see that with Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan lost the primary and then won in 80. I think that's right. Yeah, no, but why does it have to be like that? Like, I don't think that's a really healthy idea of humanity or politicians in particular that we only like you when we don't know that much about you. And then we'll build this trust and then we'd love to tear you down. And then we're going to need somebody else in order to have trust again. Well, maybe no. Maybe we can acknowledge the humanity of people. I do. Th- I think that there are opportunities in the Mueller report to see the humanity of Donald Trump, the very flawed humanity of Donald Trump, and to walk back from the betrayal of him in 2016 as a monster. I'm capable of looking at that and seeing that. You know what I mean? Like, I think you can, as you get a fuller picture, even about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, there's a possibility. Now, does that mean I build trust in Donald Trump? No, but I don't know. I I just feel like there's so much there. And if we just try to move on because everybody gets too riled when we mention Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, we're missing an opportunity. Well, I'm not trying to do that. I mean, I've studied this report. Like, I've lived in this investigation for two years because I think all of it is so important. And I think to your point about seeing the humanity in Donald Trump, a lot of it comes down to understanding that running for this job is getting harder and harder and harder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what you bring in terms of character Mm-hmm. to this job is going to matter more in the future than it ever has before. And it's always mattered a lot. Yeah. That is why I get so I just feel the blood draining from my head when I hear someone say that they can look past this president's character because of X, Y, Z policies. Because to me, the fundamental lesson of 2016 that needs to be carried forward is you are going to be presented with challenges that you don't recognize, that you don't understand, that you can't possibly fathom the ramifications of when you are seeking this office. And you need to have maybe more than anything else, more than your political experience, more than your set of policies, you need to have a finely tuned instinct for what feels a little off for where you need to hit pause and ask some questions, for where you need to reach out for help. And you need to be fearless in allowing people to look into what's happening around you because what's happening around you might not be what it seems to you. And how that feels to you personally and what everybody's saying about you personally has to come 
after what is safe and good and in the interest of our country. And so I cannot handle it when people say Donald Trump's character is not the issue here because it's exactly the issue here. It's exactly why everything that unfolded in 2016 unfolded. It's not that he is at the root of all evil in the world. I'm not trying to overplay it. But I am saying what he's capable of as a human being, flawed as he is, and I can have grace for him and I can say he is a human and I respect him. I do not hate this person. I'm saying it's not at the level of attunement to ethics that must be present in our next president. You don't think Hillary Clinton offers any insight into that? I'm not saying that. I don't know. I don't know where you would. I don't know why you're taking in that direction. I'm not saying that. Well, it just seems like when you it seems I feel like what I'm hearing from you is if she comes up, we need to move on because people have such strong opinions about her. It shuts the conversation down. No, I'm saying I don't want to talk anymore about whether she won the election by so many million votes and whether the Electoral College should exist. And this election was stolen from her because I feel like that is just a door slamming moment. And for me, it continues to pull at this very fragile trust that we feel about our institutions anyway. I think Hillary Clinton has lots of worthwhile things to say. I think Hillary Clinton is a brilliant person. I think she served this country in a lot of interesting ways. I mean, I I hope that people who've listened to us for a while know that I don't think Hillary Clinton is the root of all evil either. I just think we these two human beings are really bad vessels for us to do any kind of reconciliation or problem solving backward or forward. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the face off between those two gets us stuck in the ditch. Well, this was supposed to be a uh, quick catch up on the headlines, turned up into a little more than that. But we still have. A fascinating conversation with Lauren Leader about, honestly, many of the things that happened in 2016, particularly with regards to the media's treatment of female politicians. So I hope you'll join us for that conversation coming up next. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Lauren, welcome to Pantsy Politics. We're so excited to have you. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like your work really centers on the next step in the movement and the next step in the conversation because sometimes it feels like when we talk about women running for office, particularly post-2018, there's a little bit of, we did it. Good job, everybody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. let's all move on. Good job. And mm-hmm. tell us why that is not the right reaction. I think I'm I've become like the like the Debbie Downer character oh, on okay. SNL. No. no. Every time I'm like, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we won a hundred, you know, a hundred seats and we're still not even 30%. Yeah. Wah, wah. Wah. <laughs> so uh yeah. No, but look, I do think it's really important to stay focused. And I think, look, there's so much momentum and sort of positive outcomes from 2018, right? And we're still unpacking some of them and I think learning from them. You know, clearly we had an incredible surge in the political participation of women on a lot of levels, women running, and it's not just the ones that won. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of women around the country who ran in primaries who didn't win, but they've now had an experience of getting engaged in the political process, which is transformative for themselves and for their communities and for the women around them. We have, in fact, elected this record number of women. And yet also at the same time, it is such a baby beginning to what needs to happen in order to truly change the status quo in American politics 
the United States is 91st in the world for the political participation of women. We have never had a female head of state. We have the lowest number of women in our presidential cabinet that we've had in a generation. And so, and there are also keep in mind that the gains were so heavily on the Democratic side. You know, for Republican women, it's still a pretty bleak picture in terms of their representation in higher office. And we have a huge number of women in America who still stay on the sidelines and don't participate in the political process at all. So, you know, there are a lot of signs of hope. I think the there's new data that's come out about younger women. I think there's an incredible energy there. They're, you know, among women um, 18 to 29 they are 10 points more likely than men to say they are absolutely voting in the 2020 election. So I think there is some, there are really great signs of hope and change, but we're barely at the beginning of what needs to be a really significant transformation if we want to get to a place of anything even close to gender equity in our political process. So how do we increase that political participation? In in particular, how do we sort of convey that political participation is more than running for office for women? Because I still yeah. I you point out that there is still a lot of women who will say they ha- don't have any interest in running. And you know, I think that there are gendered definitely gendered aspects to that, but there is also a wider avenue for political participation. So so what is our right. what, what are our next steps in moving towards not only getting more women to run for office, but expanding that vision of what political participation looks like. Yeah. And that's exactly why we do the work we do it all together, because there were, you know, even five years ago when we founded, there were a lot of organizations out there focused on getting women to run for office. And those organizations deserve a ton of credit for the ways in which they helped train and mobilize, you know, all these women that ran in the 2018 election and in 2016 as well. I mean, they've been, especially like some of the older organizations like Emily's List that have been at this for years. And also part of why we do what we do is because there are still tens of millions of women who don't even see the political process as worth participating in at all. And to get women to go from politics is dirty and broken and it doesn't actually fix things and um, I don't want to have any – and it has nothing to do with my life and I can't change anything anyway to I'm going to stand up and run for office is a really big leap. Right. So – our goal at All In Together is to give women um, the tools and the resources to be to have a voice in the political process, even if they're not going to run. Now, we kind of we want advocacy to be sort of the gateway drug, right? We want people to get a taste of political participation in a way that's accessible and positive and demonstrates to them that they actually can make a difference. That even in a country as big as ours, that citizen advocacy matters and you know can change the trajectory of the country. We want people to touch and feel that and have a experience of it so that they see that it is valuable. And then obviously we hope that that will inspire more women than to step up and run down the road. But, you know, we, we need women engaging at every level of the political process. Running is one piece of it, but, you know, citizen advocacy and engagement is an enormous piece of how our democracy functions. And you've really seen that in the last couple of years, you know, when we've had big public debates around, you know, repealing the, uh, the, the Affordable Care Act, 
you know, it's largely women who mobilized around the country to tell their stories and to, you know, lobby their representatives at the state and local level and make it clear, you know, what their views were. And, and that advocacy is what shapes public policy in this country. It is a huge part of how the national agenda gets set. And we need women's voices to be strongly heard in every part of that political process, not just at the sort of end run, if you will, which is running for office. One of the most obvious paths to political participation is simply voting. And you think that there sure. is a generational component, mainly that millennials don't think voting is important, even though they're the biggest generation, they could have a huge impact. I think about this a lot. I'm an older millennial. I was born in 1981, which is like the very first basic year they'll start describing you as a millennial. Mm-hmm. I have voted in every election, but let's talk about presidential because they suck up a lot of the air in the room. I voted in five presidential campaigns. Mm-hmm. I have voted with the popular vote four times, and I've seen my candidate serve twice. That and sometimes I think I say that out loud to people, and I'm like, "Why do I still political? Why do I still get involved?" Like it's so discouraging. I think about how many, especially older millennials, came to political maturation or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whenever you call at that moment, especially with the 2000 election, even if you didn't vote till the next election, how discouraging. Like we all sort of knew the narrative. How much do you think that plays into it? And how do we get over that? Well, look, I do think it's changing. I am very encouraged by the data that I'm seeing around millennial participation. And, you know, the 2018 midterms were the highest voter participation of young voters that we've seen in a generation. It was an enormous step forward and a great sign of what's possible when we focus resources on engaging younger voters and helping people see the power and the importance of political participation. And I really credit at a lot of the grassroots organizations around the country from indivisible groups to uh, certainly like the work that we do and Voto Latino and Higher Heights and like the sort of endless, not the, the, uh, this, the campaigns that through social media and, you know, way back to even Rock the Vote years ago. I think those efforts are paying off. And also we have a lot more work to do on this front. I mean, overall, American voter participation is some of the lowest in the OECD. I mean, we leave tens of millions of people on the sidelines and and that is a huge reason why people perceive, you know, when you look at what public opinions are on key issues, they're not reflected in public policy and they are often not reflected in who's elected. It is because of how many young Americans sit on the sidelines. I think if one, I mean, much has been said about the shock to the system, particularly for younger Americans of Trump's election and the threat uh, of some of the issues and topics that are most dear to younger Americans, uh, LGBT rights, and certainly now climate change, which has you know risen so much in the consciousness of younger Americans. When they look at the political status quo and recognize that it's completely out of whack with their values, it is motivating. And that has been galvanizing. We need to keep pushing, though, because the numbers remain, you know, in my view, still unacceptably low. It's just so hard because you you want to get involved. And I mean, look, I'm involved. Obviously, I've run for office. I talk on a political podcast, but I still feel that sense of 
the people in power don't want this to happen. And it's hard to feel empowered in the face of all the, you know, the voting disenfranchisement and straight up cheating, like, you know, election fraud like you had in North Carolina. Right. So, well, but, that's but that why can I be galvanizing. That's so true, too. It can be galvanizing. And I and I think part of also what has changed, which I think is super hopeful and where we've been really focused is on local and state politics, mm-hmm. which has never mattered more. Most Americans had completely abdicated our attention from local and state elections. We just haven't been paying attention to it. And that was a shift that I think was very positive in 18, which was the energy and the focus on local races. Those state races have never mattered more, um, especially when you look at the infringements on voting rights that have been um, that have really been the domain of state legislatures. And a lot of why some of the hanky panky has been allowed to happen in the state legislatures is because the voters weren't paying attention and they, you know, weren't engaged. And so bad things happen when people are opting out. I'm very encouraged by what's happening in terms of women at the state and local level. I think that is really where we're starting to see a surge in participation. Mm. I'm running for a local office in my town. Oh, exciting. I, you what know, are you running yeah, for? Thanks. Yeah, I just happened to mention that there at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I am running for the Harrison, New York Town Board, which is in the North, Harrison is in the north of just north of New York City in Westchester County, which is a very blue, very liberal part of the country. But my town has been, first of all, there's no women in public office in my town. And there are a group of men on our town board who don't share my values and Mm. certainly don't seem to be invested in ensuring some of the gender equity issues that I care about in my town. And so I, uh, to use the phrase, got off the sidelines and decided to run and I'm on the ballot in November. And that really is exciting. Congratulations. It. Thanks. You know, I raise it not I raise it really to say that like even I, who spends my life working on these things, didn't think I'd be that interested, to be perfectly honest with you. I didn't think I'd be that interested in running a local race. I th- I did have a sense that someday I might run for office, but I sort of assumed I would, you know, run for Congress or something like that. Part of what I've really learned this year in the process of coming to decide that is a the like very real impact of local politics to affect people's lives, be that I really care about my friends and neighbors Mm -hmm. and the potential to make things better for them and for my kids in my town is very appealing and see that like you really can, um, you really, it's very accessible. It's much more accessible than people think it is. And it's an opportunity for me to learn how things work and how politics work really on this very grassroots local level. So I'm really grateful that I got the nomination and I'm running with on a joint ticket, actually with two men, uh, who are running. Um, we have like a top vote getting there's three seats and it's top vote getters. So we all have a chance to be elected and we're pooling our resources and running the race together, uh, which is really fun. And I'm learning a lot and working my butt off and, uh, I'm very excited about it, but it's so tangible. And I, right. and like it, 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 it is in the end, like completely aligned with what I've been lecturing women about for the last five years, which is when it is tangible and when it is local and when it is, you know, close to your heart and close to your life, you have this potential to make change in ways that I think a lot of us underestimate. That's really exciting. I'm the I followed the opposite trajectory of every the sort of female in politics conversation, which is I won in 2016 and lost in 2018 on my on my city commission, which is very similar. And I'm wondering, as you're on the ballot in November, and we yeah. do have a presidential race, a presidential race with on the Democratic side, 
you know, some of the, the biggest slate of women we've ever seen. Yep. How do and when you're out there working on this subject, when you're running for local office yourself and talking about it, how do you balance the focus on local and state politics with a presidential race that sucks up all the air in the room and, and also really important to this conversation because we have yeah. so many women running for the Democratic nominee? Yeah. And I think, you know, that I, so I guess I have a slightly compartmentalized life. I think, you know, that I spend a lot of time in, in media talking about these gender issues. And, you know, I do a lot of national media on pretty much a weekly basis, calling out gender bias and gender mm-hmm. issues in the presidential campaign. And I will continue to do that because uh, there's plenty to call out right. on a pretty much daily basis. Um, you know, and my beloved Joe Biden today, you know, put out his first <gasps> email starts with, our nation was founded on the principle that all men are created equal. Mm. That is how he started his very first email kicking off his presidential campaign. That's a very easy thing to overlook because of course it's part of our constitution, but that is loaded for women and people of color who frankly were left out of the constitution and are still left out of the constitution. I didn't think it was the smartest way to start in a, you know, in a field with all these women and people of color running and at a time when the democratic electorate is overwhelmingly female and, and brown. So he, he's got some work to do. I think the media, I've been really calling out the media a lot, uh, and I'm part of it. So I'm, I'm part of the problem, but I'm trying to be part of the solution. I wrote a piece in the Hill last week that's been shared over a hundred thousand times that called out the bias in the political coverage. And then even this week with the CNN town halls, uh, you know, all the gender related questions got asked to the female candidates. Mm. I'm not sure why no one asked the men what they're going to do about the gender wage gap or the men about what we're going to do to address bias in the political campaigns. They should be asked those questions. Uh, they, the women in this country are the majority of the electorate. It's unacceptable that we continue to have these double standards for women candidates. So we have to keep calling this out in my own town. I think so far it's early days. So I haven't been it's been a little quiet. I'm sure it will get more intense, but I do get introduced all the time first as mom, as a mom, mm-hmm. which is okay in some ways because it is part of what makes me a unique candidate in my town. I am the only mom running. And in fact, I was endorsed by the vote mama pack. Oh, I love is, that. That's I, yeah. I just learned about that pack. I'm so excited about it. Yeah, it's cool. It's uh Luba Gretchen Shirley who ran uh, against Peter King on Long Island last year and came very close to beating him. Uh, she lost and then set up this pack to help other women moms run for office. And she's supported by Hillary Clinton, and a bunch of other people. So I got endorsed there. So I'm not, I'm certainly proud of the fact that I'm a mom. I'm a single mom actually running as a single mom of two young girls. That's definitely part of the equation, but I, I don't love that. I'm always introduced first as a mom. I think it makes people, it is part of like what it is to run as a woman. I'm so much more than that. And, you know, I've dedicated my career to public service and, I think I'm more than a mom. So it's it's all of those things. It's everywhere. And I will continue to walk that line to do the work that I do on a national level and to call out the challenges that women face and to try to mobilize people to make a change and to see themselves as the solution. And I'm also running for office in my town uh, on nights and weekends and in all my free time. <laughs> Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15 there's not much worse than a dry energy scalp also when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed it could be that unfiltered mineral filled water is the culprit hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry irritated skin and about 85 percent of the united states uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine that's where canopy's new filtered shower head comes in canopy known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier has revolutionized the filtered shower head dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I want to talk just a little bit more about your previous point about the the sexism and the national coverage. Here is yeah. what set me off on that scene in town hall, too, <laughs> just, so, just so I can have my big feelings and somebody um, experience we'll them with it. me. The idea that they would create the verb Hillaryed is so inferior. It's not. You don't need a new word for it. It's just called sexism. Like, you didn't need to make up a new verb. We already have one, a really good one. That covers yeah. all the bases. Oh, that made me so mad. Welcome to the club because there were heads exploding all over all over America that oh night. And, you know, let's not forget that they had three men moderating the town hall. And there are plenty of qualified, uh, outstanding women at CNN, who yeah. any of whom could have been moderators. And I called them out for that 
uh, on morning Joe that the morning, you know, on Monday, cause I just was so incensed and people everywhere were noticing and it's not okay. This stuff matters and it matters that look, what happens when you start to notice the sort of everyday sexism that is around us is you start to notice the everyday sexism mm. that's are around us. My women's studies professor called it crazy making because you're like, am crazy. I crazy? Am no, I crazy I mean, or is this inferior? No, I keep joking. It's like that M. Night, I don't know, you're too young, but there was this M. Night Shyamalan movie. I can't remember which one it was, but he, he would say, I see dead people everywhere. No, the sixth but sense. I, I'm not that young, girl. I remember sense. that movie. Okay. So that's what I said. I see sexism everywhere. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's how it is. It's like a ghost. I see it everywhere. And I do think that we have had a real consciousness. You know, in the 70s, my mom's generation, they were, you know, they would have these like consciousness raising circles among feminists to help them recognize the everyday sexism that was around them and then to call it out. There are similar things happening now where, you know, I and my contemporaries and, you know, women like you who, who notice these things are beginning to call it out. We need to do that relentlessly and we need to hold the media accountable for it. One of the reasons why we continue to see this kind of incredibly biased coverage is because the media in print, film, television, and digital is overwhelmingly still dominated by white men. There is a huge gap in terms of representation of people of color in front of and behind the camera. There is a gap, an enormous gap in women in front of and behind the camera, in the editorial rooms, um, really in every corner of media. That has to be addressed because it's the only way that we ensure that there are balanced voices behind the narratives that we read, hear, and watch. And I think the media industry, you know, I work with some of the big companies when I'm, you know, not just because I'm on the air, but actually as an advisor, they are trying, but it is um, a slow road to hoe. And I would like to see more of the, more of the media agencies and organizations like really set some key goals. Bloomberg has set, um, Bloomberg media has set a number of targets for themselves around ensuring coverage of stories that center on women. They've also focused on having uh, equal representation of women in their newsroom and on air. I would like to see other uh, news outlets uh, do the same thing. I think it would go a long way. And also, Men need to be men need to hold themselves accountable and start noticing. And there's plenty of insights out there into like what kinds of words to watch out for, how to you know call out this stuff. It's a matter of awareness and commitment. Well, and that's political participation too. Calling out the yes, media, keeping them responsible is another form of political participation, and it's hugely important. You know, and yes. we also vote with our eyes and we vote with our attention just as much as we vote in the ballot box because there, as we saw in 2016, the way media covers elections, the way media covers female candidates is so hugely impactful. Enormously so. And we're seeing the impact of it already. I mean, part of the case that I've been making is that just in the sheer number of hours of coverage, time talking about the women candidates has been dramatically lower. And you see that reflected in the polls already. Mm. Uh, that's a problem. Did they and learn nothing, we, Lauren? Did they learn apparently nothing? But, you know, look, I do think that having five women is a game changer. I think that the more we normalize women in these roles, the more we call out the sexism that we see, the better it will be. But we've got a road to hoe here. Hey, we have six women. Don't forget Marianne Williamson. 
six. I cannot forget Marianne Williamson because I met her back. I met She's her fantastic. at MSNBC this week, and I was geeking out that right. I got to meet her. Well, it was really cute because I she was in the makeup chair while I was on the air, and I came off the air and she was like clapping for me in the makeup room because she was like so amped up that I <laughs> had been calling out sexism on Morning Joe, and I came off as like, oh, Marianne Williamson approves of something I said. I yeah. can die happy now. She was on our show, and it was amazing. Like she just, I want her on the debate stage so much just because I think she is so like, she's such a truth teller, man. Like she, and because she is not a traditional politician, her approach is so different. And I need that voice up there in a desperate way. I just have to say this. I want to see more women view political participation and engagement as a lifelong commitment to making the country better for themselves and for their families and not just about being angry at anyone, president or party. Mm. And I'm, that's fundamental. We have to see our lives and our experiences and our perspectives as important to shaping the future of our country, regardless of who's in office. Right. And I, I hope that what will happen in these coming years is that, you know, presidents come and go, parties come and go from power. Uh, women are here to stay. And I hope that as more women get a taste of what it feels like to speak up and step up and, and participate, that they'll start to see the power and the possibility of political participation for the long haul. Uh, that's what we need to really make this nation all that it can be. And I want to see uh, us embrace that and make the difference that I know that we can make. That is the absolute perfect ending point. And tell us where people can find your work and your organization. LaurenLeader.com and allintogether.com. And then my campaign, if you're interested, my campaign is movingharrisonforward.com. Happy to have help and support. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'm, and follow me, of course, on Twitter. I am pretty, if you want to see me, if you really want a daily rant on the everyday sexism, follow me on Twitter. I do want Lauren. that, Lauren, deeply. <laughs> at Lauren Leader AIT. I am, I will be your, I will be your champion. Thank you. Thank you. Make me feel less crazy. Am I crazy or was that You're infuriating? You are not crazy. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Lauren Leader. That was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Felt like I exercised some of my big feelings, which I needed to do. I also have just a quick thing I wanted to add before we wrap up the show, which is if you've been listening to our show for a while and you keep hearing me talk about how fabulous Paducah is and you think, I could live in Paducah. Oh, good, because I have two institutions I deeply care about that are hiring. My church, Grace Episcopal Church, is hiring a children's and youth minister And our local Paducah Cooperative Ministries, which runs both a food pantry, utility bill assistance, rent assistance, and a homeless shelter for women and children, is hiring a financial development person. So if any of those sound interesting to you, shoot me an email, sarah at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We will be back with you again on Tuesday. We're going to do a little catch up on Tuesday of some really interesting thinking and writing that we've had not had time to talk about otherwise. And so I think it should be a really interesting conversation. Hope you'll join us then over the weekend as our democracy continues to hang in the balance. <laughs> Keep it nuanced, y'all.
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.